And now our sermon text is from Mark chapter 1, the first 13 verses. Again, listen to the gospel of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beast and the angels ministered to him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need you to bless us as we consider your word, as we consider Christian baptism. Help us to understand who we are because of who you have made us in Christ. Do that for us by your spirit who is in us and among us. And in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Hopefully I can still see my notes after splashing so much water on them here. Since we had a baptism last week and this week, and since we'll have at least two more that I know of uh, in the next coming weeks, week or two or three, I decided to take a break from our series on prayer. Really, I think I only have one more sermon anyway, and it's a great Easter sermon. And I'm going to do a one-off on baptism. Today we're going to look at Christian baptism from the perspective of Christ's baptism. The meaning of your baptism, the meaning of Isabel's baptism this morning, is rooted in the baptism of John, and specifically the baptism of Jesus by John in the Jordan River. So this morning, we're going to meditate on that event, that important event in the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus that kicked off his ministry. And we're going to do it with the purpose of understanding Isabel's baptism and then, of course, your baptisms, all of our baptisms. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the stark contrast between 
verse 9, on the one hand, and then verses 10 and 11 in Mark chapter 1, on the other hand. If all we had was verse 9, we might be tempted to think that nothing extraordinary happened. Verse 9 sounds very ordinary, right? came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Imagine if Mark had stopped right there without including verses 10 and 11, which talk about how the heavens were ripped open and God spoke and said words of affirmation and love about his son. What if we only had verse 9? Without verses 10 and 11. Well, it wouldn't tell the whole story, would it? It wouldn't give us the full picture of what this event is about, what's going on, what God is doing, its meaning, its significance. Yet this is often how we think about baptism, whether it's ours or someone else's, Isabel's, Jackson's last week. We kind of Stop at verse 9, as it were. We only register the ordinary, visible side of it. Maybe it's how you were thinking of the baptism that took place this morning. Perhaps you only took notice of an outward ceremony taking place up here in the front of the church. It's something we do. It's traditional. Well, it's biblical too. But the Bible invites you to see a whole lot more going on than that. Not just in this passage, but in the rest of the New Testament. The scriptures teach us that in baptism, God gives us promises. Most important, he gives us himself. That's where we need to start. He gives us the Holy Spirit, just as he sent the Holy Spirit upon Jesus at his baptism. Acts 2.38 says that in baptism, you receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. I put a few verses in the handout if you got one. It's not essential if you didn't, but there was a handout with a few passages that I'll be referencing so you don't have to flip if you don't want to, to these. They're important scriptures as we talk about baptism. Uh, Not everything I reference is going to be in there. And the colors at the bottom, we'll save that for the Q&A if I have time. But in Acts 2.38, God says that in baptism you received God, the Holy Spirit. Acts 22.16 says that your baptism was in in some sense a washing away of your sins. That's what uh, Ananias tells Paul. Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins. This is three days after his conversion. Romans 6.3-7 says that in baptism you died with God. You were buried with Christ. You were raised with Christ, being justified from sin. Now, I know these are this is strong language about baptism. We're going to talk about this, but let's just get it out in front of us here and maybe be a little uncomfortable for a minute. Galatians 3.27 says that in baptism you were clothed with Christ. Ephesians 5.26 says that in baptism Christ cleansed you by the washing of water with the word. Colossians 2.11, you were united to the cross of Christ in baptism and you put off the body of flesh. The next verse, Colossians 2.12, you were buried with Christ and then raised with him 
in your baptism through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. Paul says in Titus 3, 5, in baptism you received the washing of rebirth or regeneration. Hebrews 10.22 says that in your baptism, your body was washed with pure water and your heart was sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. I'll stop there. There's, there's much more. The Bible uses very rich language about Christian baptism. God attaches his word and his promises and his spirit to baptism. We see this over and over in scripture after scripture. One of these days we'll do a series just on the meaning of Christian baptism. Two or three sermons, maybe, because there's a lot to talk about. And so when you witness a Christian baptism, you need to train your mind to see more going on than merely what meets the eye. Don't become complacent in your baptismal, uh, your theology of baptism. Don't stop in verse 9 of Mark 1. Make sure and read verses 10 and 11. And when you witness a baptism, you're not just witnessing water being applied to an individual. You're, you're witnessing a work of God. You're witnessing something supernatural. In Christian baptism, God opens the heavens and pours himself out on his child. He puts his name on this person. He claims this person. He commits himself to this person and calls that person to commit himself or herself to God. He declares his love for this person. The love that the father shows to the son at his baptism and elsewhere, but in particular in his baptism, is the same love that the father shows you. You are his son too. You are his daughter. What belongs to Jesus belongs to you, including the Father's love and promises. All of the inheritance is yours in Jesus. Verse 10 says that as Jesus was coming up from the, the river, the barrier between earth and heaven was ripped open and the Holy Spirit descended from heaven as a dove would descend and he rested upon Jesus. And so, you know, what's interesting here. John, the baptizer, had just said in verse eight. That Jesus would be the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, He says, I baptize with water, but one's coming. Messiah is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And right after John says this, Jesus is baptized with water and the Holy Spirit. You see, before Jesus could baptize us with the spirit, he needed to be baptized with the spirit himself. When Jesus gives us his spirit, when he gives the spirit to us, it is an outflowing of what the father has first given to his son, to Jesus. Now, is there anything in scripture that leads us to believe that what happened to Jesus in his baptism also happened to us in ours? Does the Bible teach us that Isabel, for example, received the Holy Spirit this morning? When she was baptized. Yes. In Acts 2. Peter says just that in his Pentecost sermon. Let me read it again. I've already read it. From Acts 2. Peter is addressing the Jews who are convicted of their sin. And they're asking, what shall we do? 
Peter tells them in Acts 2, 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent and be baptized, and you too will receive the Spirit that the apostles had received. A few verses later, in Acts 2, 41, it says that 3,000 Jews were baptized that day. And when these Jews were baptized, it may have felt pretty ordinary. The Holy Spirit probably did not descend visibly in the same way. It's unlikely that anyone heard God's voice during any of these 3,000 baptisms. However, something very extraordinary happened when each of these people were baptized. According to Peter in Acts 2.38, a few verses earlier, these 3,000 converts received the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. According to the Apostle Peter, you and I and Isabel received the promised gift of the Holy Spirit through the waters of baptism. And so, at this point, we need to ask the question, do you believe this? Do we believe this? Is this too much for you? I admit, sometimes it's almost too much for me. But let me comfort you with this. It, it, it was not too much for Peter or Paul. And it was also not too much for Augustine and Luther and Calvin. Nothing I have said here would have scandalized any of them. So this is not just scriptural. This is a part of our theological heritage as we are faithful to the scriptures. Now, it's fair, though, to ask what, what in the world Peter means here. What does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit in baptism? Now, we're going to talk about that in a, in a positive way, but it might be helpful first to be clear on what Peter does not mean. So we can clear that ground First, he does not mean that baptism is an automatic ticket to heaven. Peter's not teaching here, once baptized, always saved. There will be a lot of baptized people in hell, unfortunately. People who did not trust Christ to the end. Who did not know God. Peter is also not saying that Christian baptism is the exact point when God converts a person's heart and gives him new faith, new life, inner life. Baptism is not when God regenerates someone's heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And Peter is not saying that a Christian only has a relationship with God, with the Holy Spirit, after he or she is baptized. Nothing like that. Peter is not saying that Isabel was a God-hating rebel before she was baptized this morning, but now she has a relationship with God simply because of this ceremony, reducing it to this ceremony. No, Isabel had a relationship with Christ, with her Savior, before she was baptized this morning. God was her father two hours ago, Two weeks ago, two months ago. In fact, we baptized Isabel precisely because the Bible says that the Lord 
had already established a relationship with her while she was in Rachel's womb. We baptized Isabel because God was already her God, according to God. We baptized her because God had claimed her as his child in his word. So, for example, when Isabel grows up and she's able to speak and express the faith that God has given her, she'll be able to pray this from Psalm 71, 5 and 6. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. Verse 6 literally says, I have leaned upon you from the womb. That's her prayer. That will be her prayer. Miles and Rachel, you need to teach Isabel to pray this prayer that God wrote for her in Psalm 71. God, you have been my trust. The one I put my trust in from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from the womb. That's not all. She will also be able to pray this prayer from Psalm 22.10. I was cast upon you from birth. From the time I was in my mother's womb, you have been my God. These are the prayers of every person who has been raised in a faithful covenant home. Every every covenant child. Born into a Christian home, adopted into a Christian home. Can pray these kinds of prayers. Listen to Psalm 22, 9, the verse right before the one I read. Oh, Lord, you made me to have faith in you, to trust in you while I was on my mother's breast. So, Miles and Isabel teach, uh, Miles and Rachel teach Isabel to pray Psalm 22, 9 and 10. But God does not only give our covenant infants faith. Psalm 8 says that God also puts his praises On the lips of our nursing babies. Psalm 8 says that God conquers his enemies through the praises of our little ones. I don't know how exactly that works. But God says it happens. God establishes relationships with our children. Even while they are infants. Even while they are in the womb. Our text this morning. Is the baptism of Jesus. By whom? By John. And do you remember what happened about 30 years earlier before this baptism? John and Jesus were both in their mother's wombs at the same time. John was a little older. And when Mary meets John's mother, Elizabeth, what did little John do in the womb? He leapt for joy in Elizabeth's womb. John had the joy of the Lord while he was in utero. It's a mystery to us how God gives our children faith and praise and joy. But it should not stop us from believing that he does give our little ones faith and praise and joy. And so when Isabel came to church today, God had already established a relationship with her. She came to church as a believer, as one who, by God's grace alone, has already begun to lean on God and Hope in God, the text says. 
to put her trust in God, the text says. That's why Peter goes on to say in the next verse, coming back to his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.39, that the promise of the Holy Spirit is not just for you, not just for the adults who are converting to Christ. It is for you and for your children. Repent and each of you be baptized in the, for the remission of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for this promise is to you and to your children. We baptized Isabel this morning, not because it's the traditional thing to do or even the sentimental thing to do. We didn't baptize her because it's what the early church did or even because it's what the reformers did. Isabel's parents brought her to the waters of baptism because she is a child of the covenant and heir of the promises. Because God has put his claim on her. And he did so even before Miles and Rachel knew she existed. But this is not just true of Isabel. It's true of all of us, including those of us who were baptized when we were older. Maybe those of us who did not grow up in the covenant, in a Christian home where we were discipled from our youth. Each of us came to the waters of baptism with varying degrees of faith. That's true no matter when you were baptized. Whether you were baptized as a baby or as an adult or like me as a 10-year-old, you were baptized because there was evidence that God had established by his sovereign grace a relationship with you. There was evidence of your faith, of God's work in your heart. That evidence may have been your profession of faith. When someone makes a genuine confession that Jesus is Lord, then that constitutes evidence that God has established a relationship with this person, and so they should be baptized. That's what happened to me at 10 years old. When I was 10, the Lord opened my heart to his word, even as he opened Lydia's heart, it says in Acts 16. And soon thereafter, I was baptized. Now, you might be asking, so what evidence is there that God has established a relationship with our covenant infants? They can't make a profession of faith. They can't confess Jesus is Lord. How do we know that God is the God of Isabel? Well, obviously, the the evidence is not a profession of faith, is it? The evidence, though, is the word of God. The evidence is the promise that God makes to our covenant children, which is the surest evidence there is, right? The scriptures, especially the Psalms, are clear that God makes himself known to our little ones. That's his grace and mercy to us by being the God of our little ones as well. And he establishes a special relationship with them. And one of the first things the Bible says to do when God makes himself known to you, the first thing someone should do when God opens their heart is to be baptized. And so we're back to our question. What does Peter mean in Acts 2.38 when he says that believers receive the Holy Spirit in baptism? In what sense did Isabel receive God's spirit this morning? The best way to answer the question 
is to return to the Jordan River and consider what it meant for Jesus to receive the Holy Spirit in baptism. What did it mean for our head, the Messiah, to receive the Holy Spirit in baptism? Well, Jesus' baptism was the beginning of his ministry. The Jordan River is where the Father commissioned Jesus and anointed him for his mission to the world. The Father equipped his beloved Son for the battle that lay ahead. And the primary weapon that the Father gave his Son was an extra measure of the Holy Spirit. Jesus needed an abundance of the Holy Spirit to face the next three and a half years. Jesus' warfare and his suffering did not begin on the cross or in Gethsemane. His entire ministry was one of affliction. He had no place to lay his head. He was rejected by his hometown and even by his own family. The authorities were constantly trying to trap him and kill him. Kill him. No one understood his gospel message. Even the disciples did not grasp the core of the gospel until after the resurrection. Most of his followers ended up abandoning him. Jesus was taking, taking up his cross and dying to himself before he got to the literal cross. In fact, do you remember what happened right at the beginning of his ministry, right after the baptism? Immediately after he was baptized, the Holy Spirit pushed him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Mark 1.12 says, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And the, the very spirit who had just descended on him is now thrusting him into the 40-day duel with the devil. But in addition to equipping Jesus with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Father also confirmed Jesus' identity as his son. He said to Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. These are powerful Words, and it's not the only time the father says it to the son. They are powerful words, the words of a father identifying his son as his son. Fathers, one of the most powerful things you can do is to imitate your heavenly father in this way. To look at your children and to tell them, you are my son. I love you because you're my son. You bring me joy. I love you. Or you are my daughter and I will always love you because you're my daughter. I'm pleased with you. Nothing can separate you from my love. When you do this, you reflect the love of the heavenly father. Not just for Jesus, but the heavenly father's love for his people. And you help your children to understand how their heavenly father loves them. You want your children to know how much God loves them, then help them. They need to hear how much you love them. This will help them to believe that God loves them because they are his children. So Jesus goes to war with Satan in the wilderness. And he enters into battle equipped, fully equipped, equipped by the spirit. The father has given Jesus what he needs to endure the next three years. 
three years of rejection, hunger, sleep deprivation, loneliness, grief, loss of loved ones, disappointment, betrayal, humiliation, derision, abandonment, and death. Ultimately, Jesus is even forsaken by his own father as he goes to a Roman cross. And the father leaves him up there. How did Jesus endure this? How could he? How how did he maintain his faith and faithfulness during these three years and especially on the cross? Well, he was able to persevere because he knew his father loved him and he knew he was his father's son. That was his identity. That was who he was, the son of God. Because his father poured out his Holy Spirit on him in abundance for this purpose. And this is not just true of Jesus. It's true of Jesus in a unique way, obviously. But today, God has identified Isabel as his child, his daughter. He has told Isabel how much he loves her. He's reminded us of how much he loves us. God loves Isabel as he loves his son, Jesus. Today, God has anointed Isabel with his spirit. He has equipped Isabel. He has commissioned Isabel. This is not the end of the story for Isabel. It's just the beginning. And now that God has done this special work for her, in her, the spirit plans to work on her. Because God loves Isabel, he will put her through the fire. He will drive her into wildernesses. God intends to teach Isabel obedience through the things that she suffers, just as the Father taught Jesus obedience through the things that he suffered. The spirit that Jesus has given to Isabel is calling Isabel to take up her cross, to die to herself every day for the rest of her life. In other words, he's calling her to do something very difficult and unnatural for her. This is not something Isabel could do on her own. That's why God has given her his spirit, the spirit of Jesus. Today, God sent the spirit of God, the spirit of the Son, into Isabel's heart, crying, Abba, Father. Today, God has told Isabel how much he loves her. Today, God has commissioned and equipped Isabel to go out and fight the good fight and to stand firm until the very end. That's what this means. That's what happened today. And we have reason to believe that Isabel will stand firm. In sending Isabel to war, God has set her up for success. And all of us here are called to help her, to help her parents as they train her to fight valiantly until the end of her life. That is part of what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful blessing. A gift from God, as Peter calls it, but it's also a high calling, a commission. It's a cross-shaped calling. 
And this leads us to the very final thing that we need to talk about, that we need to consider. Jesus actually had two baptisms. His first baptism was with water and the Spirit in the Jordan. We read about it this morning. His second baptism was with blood on the cross. In Mark 10, 38, Jesus asks his disciples, Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink and be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? Here, Jesus refers to his upcoming crucifixion as a baptism. Jesus' baptism in water set him on the path that would culminate in his baptism on the cross. So you see how water baptism is really just the beginning. It's not the end. Christ's baptism with water and the Spirit led him inevitably to his baptism on the cross. Jesus' second baptism was a baptism of death. His first baptism put him on the road to that death. His first baptism equipped him to face his second baptism with obedience and with courage and for the joy set before him. Same is true for all of us here. From Isabel on up. Christian baptism is not only where God gives us promises, it is also where he calls us to take up our cross and die. Isabel's Christian life has begun. So far, she doesn't have many disappointments. She hasn't had to face much heartache yet. She might get hungry sometimes. But the Spirit has not sent many trials her way. But the same is not true for most of us in this room. Most of you can look back and see where the Spirit has pushed you and stretched you and refined you in the fire, occasionally sending you out into the wilderness. You can also see how this same Spirit was faithful to sustain you, to walk with you, And to use your trials for your good. For God's glory. The devil would like you to think that your suffering is not normal. The normal Christian life. In fact, he would like to persuade you that you shouldn't have to be tested like this. It's not fair. That's what the devil told Jesus in the wilderness, isn't it? Why should you go hungry, Jesus? Just turn these stones to bread. Get yourself some to eat. You deserve it. Why should you have to die on a cross to to accomplish this, to receive the kingdoms of the world? Just bow down to me and and we can end this right now. It It can all be yours. This nonsense is over. I'll give you the whole world pain free. The devil does the same thing to you, to me. He says, Why should you have to deal with a spouse who acts this way? You don't deserve it. It's not part of the good life. Or you shouldn't have to keep struggling with the same regrets or the same sins your whole life. If if God loved you, he'd free you from this burden. You'll just serve me in the world 
in the flesh. You can have relief. You can just indulge yourself in your anxiety, in your sorrow, in your depression, in your pain, in your lusts. Whatever you need relief from. We can end all that nonsense. The devil wants you to believe that your grief, your disappointments, your dark nights of the soul, your financial difficulties. He wants you to believe that none of this is really necessary or helpful for your Christian walk. But your baptism reminds you otherwise. Your baptism reminds you that God doesn't always keep you from hardships and heartaches. We learn obedience to the things we suffer. Like Jesus, you were commissioned and equipped to endure trials. And even to glory in them. Paul says in Romans three, Romans five, three to five. We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope and hope does not disappoint. Why? Because, Paul says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Did you hear that? The love of God has been poured out into your hearts By the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out into Isabel's heart. By the Holy Spirit who was given to her. This is the basis of her hope. It's the basis of your hope. On the cross, Jesus poured out his love for you. And in your baptism, he poured this love directly into your heart. By giving you his Holy Spirit in a special way. He has given you the same spirit who was with Jesus through all of his temptations and trials. And God's free gifts do not disappoint. They do not disappoint those who hold on to them, who cling to them with faith. This was true for Jesus. True for you. It's true for Isabel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for calling us to be your children, for making us your sons and daughters through the faith that you have given us and through the waters of baptism. Help us to fight valiantly, to turn away from sin, to walk in the spirit that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.